0: What do you want God to do for you this morning? What do you want him to do for you? There are lots of people out there, I think, who have stories of asking God to do something spectacular, miraculous even, in order to prove that he's there. But that's not what I'm asking. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about in your heart of hearts as you just sit here this morning quietly thinking. What is it that you really want God to do for you? Not to prove anything about himself, but, but to help you, to, to serve you. Some, something you want, something that you need, that you cannot do for yourself. Now, maybe you're sitting here this morning and you're thinking, that's a terrible question to ask, Pastor. That's that's irreligious. That's impious to, to want God to do something for me. I mean, maybe your, your theology tells you that that it's, you got it backwards, pastor. See, I'm, I'm supposed to serve God. Not God serve me. Or maybe you're sitting here this morning. And you're sort of at the other end of the spectrum. You're just flat Skeptical that God would ever bother to do anything for you. God helps other people, but not you. Now, if either of those things describe you, if you find yourself thinking this morning, that, that question, what do I want God to do for me, it's just the wrong question for whatever reason, then I want to suggest to you this morning that you don't understand God. Turn with me, if you would, to Second Samuel chapter seven. Second Samuel chapter seven. It's found on page four hundred eighty. If you're using one of the Bibles we've provided, four hundred eighty. Second Samuel chapter seven. I'm going to read just the first three verses. After the king was settled in his palace and the Lord had given him rest from all his enemies around him, he said to Nathan, the prophet, here I am living in a palace of cedar while the ark of God remains in a tent. Nathan replied to the king, whatever you have in mind, go ahead and do it. for The Lord is with you. We're not told how much time has passed since the end of 2 Samuel chapter six, when David brought the Ark of God to Jerusalem and the opening of chapter seven, where he he has this conversation with the prophet Nathan. We've noted before, though, you've noticed in some of the the earlier sections that we've looked at that that the final editor of Second Samuel is less concerned to give us a chronological history. He's more concerned to give us a theological history, helping us to understand the, the meaning and the significance of David's. Reign and fall and return as king of Israel. He's he's more interested in giving us the significance than than he is really in giving us a very careful play-by-play, you know, chronological history the way we're we're used to reading in the history books that we buy at Barnes and Noble or Amazon or wherever. Well, given the 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 rest that David has from all of his enemies that's mentioned there in, in verse 1. Uh, it, it's, it's probable, likely, I think, that this, this, this whole chapter, chapter 7, the events of chapter 7, actually happen historically after the events of chapters 8 to 12. Because as, as we're going to see next week in chapters 8 to 12, well, that's when he finally does have rest from all of his enemies. But the story is placed here precisely so that we won't miss the connection of these events in chapter 7 with what just happened in chapter 6. Remember, remember last week, chapter 6, the great king, Yahweh, has come into his city and, and, and established his throne in his city, Jerusalem. And, and now as chapter 7 opens, his, his servant... David, see, we thought he was the king, but but chapter six made it very clear. David's just, you know, the vice regent. He's he's the servant of the real king, the servant. David, he wants to do something for the king. He wants to build him a palace like his own, literally a house. It just seems unseemly for the servant to live in grand quarters while the real king, the true king is. Hanging out in a tent outside. And so, you know, he he kind of voices this idea. And and his royal advisor and prophet, Nathan, he he thinks it's a good idea too. Makes sense. And and so he says, go ahead. Whatever's in your heart, go ahead and do it. Because the Lord is clearly with you. And that sets up the very first surprise of chapter 7. Because as it turns out, David is not going to serve God. God is going to serve David. And to let David know how this is going to work itself out, God makes a promise to David. So if you're taking notes, this is the first point. God's promise to David. What God's going to do for David. So look in verse 4 of of, uh, 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 4. That night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan, saying, Go and tell my servant David, this is what the Lord says. Are you the one to build me a house to dwell in? I have not dwelt in a house from the day I brought the Israelites up out of Egypt to this day. I've been moving from place to place with a tent as my dwelling. Wherever I have moved with all the Israelites... Did I ever say to any of their rulers, whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now then, tell my servant David, this is what the Lord Almighty says I took you from the pasture and from following the flock to be ruler over my people Israel. I have been with you wherever you have gone, and I have cut off all your enemies from before you. Now I will make your name great. Like the names of the greatest men of the earth and I will provide a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they can have a home of their own and no longer be disturbed. Wicked people will not oppress them anymore as they did at the beginning and have done ever since the time I appointed leaders over my people Israel. I will also give you rest from all your enemies. The Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you when your days are over. And you rest with your fathers. I will raise up your offspring to succeed you who will come from your own body and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father and he will be my son. When he does wrong, I will punish him with the rod of men, with floggings inflicted by men. But my love will never be taken away from him as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you. Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. Nathan reported to David all the words of this entire revelation. So far from building a house for God, God is going to build a house for David. And right away in this passage, you see the play on words. The Hebrew word for house shows up. Fifteen times in this chapter, sometimes it means palace like it like it did in verse two. David was in his house of cedar, his his palace. Sometimes it means temple as it does there in in verse five. Uh, are, are you the one to build me a house to dwell in or, or verse 13? This this son is going to come someday who will build a house for my name. After all, what is what is a temple other than a Palace for a God. That's what a temple is. But sometimes it means dynasty, as it does there in verse 11. The Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. David wants to build God a temple, a house. But God says, no, you're not the one to do it. Instead, I'm going to do something for you. I'm going to make your line into a dynasty, into, into a house, and your offspring will rule over God's people forever. And just in case you're wondering, the, the word that's used there for forever means forever. <laughs> Not just a long time, but always Forever. Now, that is quite a promise. And while the narrative has led us to expect that God is with David, when we actually step back and look at this promise, we're not really prepared for it. It's frankly outrageous. After all, we we just saw God take the kingdom away from Saul and Saul's house. Saul was very interested in having a dynasty. God wiped it off the face of the earth. We, we know that David has been faithful you know, so far in, in all the ways that Saul was particularly unfaithful. But we also know, I mean, it's just chapter seven, that the story isn't over yet. You know, St- Saul started off really well, too. H- how do we know that, that David isn't going to, in fact, end up like Saul? Well, that's really the point. Of why chapter 7 comes when it does. It comes before the story is over. If you've read ahead, you know it comes before chapter 11. and David's fall with Bathsheba. So that we'll understand just what kind of promise this is. And just what kind of God this is. This, this is not payment for services. This is not a reward because David, you know, gets to the end of his life and we see how faithful David is. And so God says, all right, since since you made it to the finish line, since you were faithful, since you were obedient, I tell you what I'll do. I'll make your line the line that rules forever. No. No, no we're, we're told about this in advance so that we'll understand exactly what kind of promise this is. This is a gift. This is grace, pure and simple. You think God doesn't know the end of the story? You think God doesn't know what's, what's going to happen in chapter 11? He knows. And he's making the promise anyway. Because this is the kind of God he is. This is a gift of pure grace. And to make that even more clear, the promise comes not in the form of just like a, you know, a casual promise like you and I make to each other all the time and then don't keep. No, it comes in the form of a covenant. Now, now the word covenant isn't used in this passage, but the form of a covenant is very clear in the words that God says, because in the ancient Near East, covenants always basically followed the same pattern. And, and we see that pattern right here in chapter 7. It, it begins in verses 5 to 7 with a preamble. Covenants always begin with a preamble. What does the preamble do? The preamble identifies who's talking. Who is this great king that is about to enter into a covenant with someone else? And, and, and who is talking? Who is this great king? Well, he's the one in verses 5 to 7 who's been with Israel from the day they left Egypt, moving around with them wherever they moved. This is the point of, of the tent or, 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 the, or the tabernacle. Unlike all the other gods of the ancient world, Israel's God was not tied to a place. In, in the ancient world, gods were very clearly associated with, with geography. The gods of Egypt were kind of tied to the Nile. The, the gods of Canaan were tied to specific mountaintops or specific regions, but, but not this God. This God is, is unlike all the other gods. This, this God moves around. This God is tied not to a place, but to his people. His, his dwelling place was, was them, the, the, the people of God, where, wherever they were. God makes it very clear that that's who's talking to you, David. I, I, the, the God who's talking to you is the God, actually, who doesn't need a building to live in. Because he's the God who's always been with his people. What, what's more, from the very beginning, he's been the God who served his people rather than the other way around. He's the one who brought them up out of Egypt. He, he, this, this is the point, really, of the question there in, in verse 7. Not once has God found himself kind of, you know, hand on hip, toe tapping, impatiently, impatiently, saying, come on, guys. Where's that house? I've been waiting. I've been wait- Why haven't you built the house yet? I need it. No, that's not God. That's not God at all. He has been the one who has served them. Friends, it's really easy to get the wrong idea about God, isn't it? To think of him as someone who needs us. Someone who needs our service. Someone someone who needs my sacrifices. Someone who really needs my tithes and offerings this week. Someone who, who needs me. Friends, God doesn't need us. He's never needed us. We need him. And right away, God makes that clear to David and to us. The God who is speaking promises to David, the God who speaks promises to us, isn't a God who's waiting around for his people to serve him. No, he's he's the God who from the very beginning has been with his people. Serving them. Isaiah is amazed at this thought, and he, he picks this theme up uh, later in Isaiah 64, when he says, since since ancient times. No one has heard, no ear has perceived, no eye has seen any God besides you who acts on behalf of those who wait for him. You see, what the world knows is gods who wait for their people to act for them. But not this God. This is the God who acts, who serves his people. Well, that's the preamble. That's, that's who's talking. That's who's talking to David. And friends, that's who's talking to us this morning. We need to be really clear on who this God is. Not a God who needs us. No, a God who is committed to serving his people. Well, then in, in verses 8 and 9, we get what's called the historical prologue. What's, what's a historical prologue? Well, whenever a, a, a great king in the ancient Near East entered into a covenant with some lesser king. What he would always do right at the outset of the covenant is he would remind the other party just what he had already done for the other party to the covenant that, that was serving now as the basis for why we should be in a covenant, right? Basically, uh, you know, I, I've already done all this stuff for you. And therefore, you're now going to enter into a covenant with me. That, that's, that's kind of the way they all worked. And we see this even in the Bible, in, in Deuteronomy chapter 20. Uh, before God gives them the, the commands of the covenant, what does he do? He reminds them what he's already done. I brought you up out of Egypt. Well, here, God reminds David of what he's already done for him. Standard covenant language. And what has he done? Well, he, he brought him from the pasture to the palace. I mean, he was a shepherd boy and now he's king over all Israel. And and not only that, God reminds David that that he has delivered him from all of his enemies. Neither Saul nor Goliath, nor nor the Philistines, nor the Ammonites, nor the Arameans, nor Ishbosheth, as we saw a couple of weeks ago. None of them have been able to lay a hand on David. You know, just like it's easy for us to forget who God is, it's easy for us to forget what he's already done. What has he already done for us? Friends, he gave us life. This is why the Bible talks about creation so often. It's easy to walk through this life thinking we created ourselves. It's easy to walk through this life thinking that we have life in and of ourselves. But it's not true. We're we're alive because God made us. We're alive because God gives us life. You're drawing breath right now because God gave you the ability to draw it. And he gave you the life to keep drawing it. Christians in the past used to think a lot about the doctrine of providence. The doctrine of providence is just thinking about the ways in which God orders the world around us so as to provide for us sovereignly in this in this technological age in this in this scientific age we don't talk about providence much anymore we we are fairly convinced that we know how the world works we 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 know where our food came from we know how we got it we know how biology works we know where our kids came from we know how we got them we in all of our understanding which is good and true, have forgotten the most important thing. But behind all of that, there's God. There's God who gives us life and breath. There's God who causes his rain to fall on the righteous and the unrighteous. There's God who orders every event of your life Then we get to the real surprise. Because at this point in a covenant, we've been told who's talking to us. We've been told what he's already done for us. At this point in a covenant, what we expect is the demand for obedience and loyalty. Because of what I've done for you in the past, I am telling you now that you owe me complete obedience and complete loyalty. That's the way the covenant at Sinai worked. Because I brought you up from Egypt... Now, obey all the words that I've given you. Have no other gods, total loyalty, total obedience. That's the way all the other basic ancient Near Eastern covenants work between a great king and a lesser king. But instead of saying that, we get this surprise. Verse 9, God says, since I've done all this for you already, now... Now I'm going to do even more. Now I'm going to do even more. Where, where, where's the demand for obedience? Where are where, where the, where the rules? Where are the stipulations? Where's the law? Friends, this is a covenant of grace. And he lays out this, this more that he's going to do, he lays it out in general terms in verses 9 to 11. And then he lays it out very specifically in verses 11 to 16. And that was also very typical of covenants. General and then specific. So general, general headline. David, I am going to make you great. And through you, I am going to give rest to your people. There's there's the general headline. Fine print, the specifics. I'm going to do this by establishing your dynasty. Your offspring will build a temple for my name. Your offspring will reign on the throne of the kingdom forever. And unlike Saul, I'm never going to take my love away from your offspring. Your offspring will be my son and I will be his father. This is why in ancient Israel, the kings were known as sons of God. This promise right here that the title son of God was a title of kingship. Now, this is an incredible promise. But 3,000 years later, we really have to ask two questions, two simple questions. First, did God keep this promise? And second, what in the world does a promise that God made to an ancient Near Eastern monarch have to do with you and me today in the 21st century? And friends, the answer to those two questions is the reason that I think 2 Samuel chapter 7 is the most important chapter in the entire Old Testament. There are a lot of important chapters in the Old Testament. We, we, we could point to Exodus 20 or Deuteronomy 5. We, we, could, talk, we, we could point to, to Jeremiah 31 and the promise of, of the new covenant. But friends, I, I think this is it. I think this is the highest peak in the whole mountain range of the Old Testament. Because it is this promise in this chapter that leads us not just to a dynasty, but to a person. And that's Jesus Christ. Let me walk you through the story very quickly. As second Samuel ends and first Kings opens, it looks like God is keeping his promise just as we would expect. Solomon comes to the throne. Solomon builds the temple the, the borders of Israel reach their, their, their greatest extent Under Solomon's reign, there is peace breaking out everywhere, and it looks like that's it, promise fulfilled. But then very quickly, things go downhill. But By the end of his life, Solomon has become unfaithful, and and God judges him for that unfaithfulness. He warns that that the kingdom is going to be divided because of Solomon's unfaithfulness unfaithfulness and what follows as we walk through the rest of First Kings and Second Kings, and then as we do it again in First and Second Chronicles, what follows is a long line of descent from David biologically that literally descends into unfaithfulness theologically. Now there are bright spots along the way Josiah, Hezekiah, just to name a couple. But it's never enough. And it never lasts. By the end of the Old Testament, the throne is empty. The kingdom is ruled by a foreign king in a foreign land. The temple has been destroyed and it's been rebuilt, but it looks nothing like the glory of Solomon's temple. And as the New Testament opens, there's yet another foreigner, King Herod. Sitting on the throne. Uh, Herod has now built yet another temple and it is splendid. It is beautiful. It is glorious and it is hollow and corrupt. And then Jesus appears. As we heard earlier, announced by angels as the promised son of David, he seems to be the Messiah king that everyone is waiting for. The son of God, the king that will deliver the people, his his, his miracles, his, his teaching, his life, his righteousness, all point to him as the good shepherd like David. But they also suggest that maybe he's something more. Because what king ever did miracles? Well, at one point, the people decide, this is the guy. This is the guy we've been waiting for. And they decide to try to make Jesus king by force. But that's not the kind of king Jesus is going to be. And in the end, those same people reject him. and He is crucified by a foreign power, Rome. And the promise to David seems to have failed Forever. Until three days later, when Jesus Christ, the king, gets up from the dead, never to die again, with the power of resurrection life, the power of the life of the age to come. And he spends 40 days with his disciples, explaining them and and teaching them what had happened and who he is. And then he ascends to heaven. And why did he ascend He had to ascend because it was time for him to sit down on his throne. And that throne was not found anywhere here on earth. Because his rightful throne as the son of God was to sit on the throne of his father in heaven. The true throne over the true people of God. And Jesus Christ is even now building the temple not not a building with bricks and mortar, but a people, a, a people of God, among whom God will dwell as the place for his name. It turns out that God kept his promise, not through an unending dynasty, but through an undying offspring. A seed, because that's the word that's used there, offspring. It's literally seed. And if that reminds you of the promise to Abraham, it should. If that takes you all the way back to Genesis 3 and the promise to Adam of a promised son that would crush the serpent's head, it should. A king, a a seed. The fulfillment of all of God's promises to David. A seed who is truly David's son. And truly God's son, a a king who would endure the rod of affliction. But not for his own sin. Rather for the sins of his people whom he represented. A king whose whose throne endures forever because it's God's throne. And God himself, God the son, sits on it eternally. Friends, this is why God's promise to David matters to us it it's it's why god made the promise in the first place why why did god give this promise to david he, he did it he did it out of love love for david love for the son love for his people look look back at verse 10 and i will provide a place for my people israel and we'll plant them so they can have a home of their own and no longer be disturbed. Wicked people will not oppress them anymore as they did at the beginning and have done ever since the time I appointed leaders over my people Israel. The purpose for making the house of David great was to provide rest for God's people. To, to deliver them from their enemies. To give them, the, to give them a home. David did this in part. Solomon did it in part. Friends, ultimately, Jesus has done it. On the cross, he delivered his people from their greatest enemies. He gave us rest from our greatest enemy, sin and death. And, and, And he did it by dying for us. And so conquering death once for all. And friends, when Jesus got up from the dead, he did so. He, he, he told us this. He did so that he could go and prepare a home for us. Not, not real estate in Palestine. But a new heaven and a new earth. A home, it turns out, that, that is nothing less than the presence of God himself. David wanted to build a home for God. Jesus is building that home. Jesus is building a temple in which god himself will dwell and that temple is god's people that temple is is the new jerusalem of all of those who are included in christ where is our home god's presence where is god's home god's people do you see the beauty Of what God has planned and accomplished in Jesus Christ. He's building that temple even now. Already he dwells in it. If you are a Christian already. God is dwelling in you. And the day will come when that building is complete. When the last stone has been added. When the mortar has dried. And God will take up his dwelling fully. Forever. Forever without anything getting in the way of our communion with Him and His communion with us. If you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, I don't know what you think Christianity offers. Friends, this is what we hold out to you. This is what we offer. Eternally being with God eternal joy in the presence of God and God in your presence we offer it to you on the basis not of anything you've done but on the basis of everything that Jesus Christ has already done If, if you will but turn away from your sins and put your faith in this king this good shepherd friends this can be your reality now And it can be your future forever. I'd love to talk to you about that. I'd love to explore with you what it might mean to be in the presence of God without fear. What it might mean to begin to experience that now. And to know that it's yours forever. I'm going to be standing at the door in the back. I'd love for you to just come talk to me. There'll be people down front that you can talk to afterwards. Most of all, I want to encourage you to talk to God about this, to talk to God about whether or not it's time for you to come home, to come out of your self-imposed exile and through Jesus Christ to be brought back into God's presence. This is what God promised David. This is what he accomplished in Jesus. And it is on this promise that our salvation hangs. Now, now, if you are already a Christian, if you are in Christ, understand that this is a promise for you. God has promised that you will be with him forever, that you will be his temple and he will dwell in that temple. How can you be certain that God will keep that promise? How can you be certain that you are included in that temple that the son is building? Christian, your assurance does not come From your feelings, your assurance that you're a part of that temple does not come from the fact that, you know, right now you happen to feel God's love for you. No, your assurance comes from your certainty of God's love for Christ. Because this promise is fulfilled in Christ. And if you're a Christian, you're in him. You see, for for God's promise to you to fail, well, then his love for Christ would have to fail. For God's promise to you to fail, well, well, then God's commitment to glorify his son must fail. God's throne itself must fail, for that is the throne that Jesus sits on. Christian, your security, your assurance rests secure finally because it rests in the love of God the Father for God the Son and His commitment to keep all of His promises to His Son and in His Son. This is a love that has been from all eternity past, and it is a love that will go on for all eternity future. So, Christian, do not flatter yourself. That God keeps his promises to you because of your faithfulness. He does not. But do not fear that he will abandon his promise to you because of your sin. He cannot. It is Christ's faithfulness that won your pardon. And it is God's love for Christ that keeps you secure. So put aside your guilty fears. And stand in this promise. Rest secure of God's love for the Son and your inclusion in him. How do we respond to this? How do we respond to this extraordinary promise I think we should respond the way David did. Which brings me to the second point of, of this chapter. We've, we've looked at God's promise to David. I, I want us to look second at David's request of God. David's request of God. And that begins in verse 18 and goes to the end of the chapter. Then King David went in and sat before the Lord. And he said, who am I, O sovereign Lord? And what is my family? That you have brought me this far. And as if this were not enough in your sight, O sovereign Lord, you have also spoken about the future of the house of your servant. Is this your usual way of dealing with man, O sovereign Lord? What more can David say to you? For you know your servant, O sovereign Lord. For the sake of your word and according to your will, you have done this great thing and made it known to your servant. How great you are, O sovereign Lord. There is no one like you and there is no God but you, as we have heard with our own ears. And who is like your people, Israel, the one nation on earth that God went out to redeem as a people for himself and to to make a name for himself and to perform great and awesome wonders by driving out nations and their gods from before your people, whom you redeemed from Egypt. You have established your people, Israel, as your very own forever, and you, O Lord, have become their God. And now, Lord God, keep forever the promise you have made concerning your servant and his house. Do as you promised so that your name will be great forever Then men will say the Lord Almighty is God over Israel and the house of your servant David will be established before you. O Lord Almighty, God of Israel, you have revealed this to your servant, saying, I will build a house for you. So your servant has found courage to offer you this prayer. O sovereign Lord, you are God. Your words are trustworthy and you have promised these good things to your servant. Now, be pleased to bless the house of your servant. That it may continue forever in your sight for you, O sovereign Lord, have spoken and with your blessing, the house of your servant will be blessed forever. It's an extraordinary prayer. On the one hand, David's response is exactly what we'd expect. He's humbled by God's generosity. He's overwhelmed by God's grace. He acknowledges how unusual this is. And I mean, he's lived in the day when when there are prophets, right? When, When God is regularly sending his word. And even in that sort of context, David is saying, whoa, this has not happened before. This is new. This is way unusual. And he acknowledges, too, that it's. It is nothing about himself. It's nothing about his family that has led God to make this promise. But it's simply for the sake of God's own will and God's own pleasure. God decided. God said it. And there it is. But then we get the surprise because, see, the second half of the chapter has a surprise as well. Humility we get. Because this is an amazing promise. But beginning in verse twenty two. David begins to praise God for his greatness, for his power, for his his redeeming love for for Israel. And, you know, we get that, too. We understand, wow, God has done this amazing thing. I'm humbled and now I need to praise him. But then the real surprise comes in verse twenty five, where basically David says, since you're this kind of God, since you've done all the things that you've done and now since you've said what you've said and made the kind of promise that you've made. Do it. That's what David says. Do it. Keep your promise, God. Do what you've said you're going to do. And I don't know about you, but at that point, as I was reading along, I had to go back and read it again. Is that really what David said? I don't know what that sounds like to you. But to me, that's bold. That is bold. If David had said... God, you're so great, and I'm so humbled, and you really shouldn't have. You sh- I'm, I'm not worthy, and and I understand if you change your mind someday. Okay, that we'd understand. That sounds like us, right? There's a lot of humility in that, and there's a little bit of pride. But we get that. Or, if David had said, God... Since you've promised to make my name great, I want to know that you're really going to do it. And the way I know you're really going to do it is, I think, I think I need a bigger palace. Because that would really show everyone that my name is really great. And I'd know you're really committed to this. And a stronger army. And I think I need a few more advisors Because, God, I I really want to know and believe that you're going to keep this promise. And if you would give me these things, then I would know for sure that you're going to do what you said you're going to do. So, see, and I think we would understand that, too. It's not as pious. We're not as impressed with it. But we understand the temptation to test God. To see if he really meant what he said. And to to begin to set up some some intermediate things that he needs to do first. So we're sure he's going to do the really big thing. But see, David neither tests God. Nor does he brush him off with false modesty and pride. Instead, he humbly acknowledges that he does not deserve this grace. And then he boldly says, all right, then, since you promised I didn't make you promise, I didn't ask for it. You did it, God. You promised, do it. Do it. Humble boldness. Friends, that's what faith is. Faith is humble boldness with God. Faith takes its stand humbly. It doesn't in any way depend on, on what it brings to the table. Faith knows That it doesn't bring anything to the table. Faith knows that anything good that we receive from God, we receive by grace. We don't receive it because of our good deeds. We don't receive it because of our wise decisions. We we don't receive it because really of anything we've done. We receive good from God. We receive his grace simply because he decides to give it to us. His will, his pleasure, he does it. And that humbles us. But on the other hand, faith, takes its stand. It stands. It doesn't wonder if God really meant it. It doesn't ask for further proof. It doesn't test. Like David, faith takes God's word at face value because faith recognizes whose word it is. That's the point of all the praise that came before. And then it insists that God, you do what you said you would do. God, be consistent with yourself. Keep your word. And friend, if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, this is all God asks of you. He doesn't ask you to go and do great things for him. He doesn't ask you to go fix your life, clean yourself up and make yourself presentable and come back to him. He asks you simply to humbly accept that you're in desperate need for his generous grace. That there's nothing you can do to deserve it. And then to boldly believe that God died for you on the cross in the person of his son, Jesus Christ, in order to bring you into his family. It's the easiest and the hardest thing you'll ever do. Easy because it's just trust. Hard. Because it must destroy all of your pride. You must come to him humbly. And you must boldly believe him. That Jesus didn't just die. But he died for you. Now as a church. This is why we pray. You you, you realize this is David's prayer. This is why we pray. And this should be how we pray. We We don't pray to change God's mind. We don't don't pray because he's uncertain of of what he should do in any given situation and we need to give him a little bit of extra information or advice. We we don't pray because somehow in the mind of God, the future is uncertain. God knows exactly what he's going to do. He knows exactly what's going to happen. No, we pray because this is what it means to have faith. And in our prayers, God is glorified. He's glorified as we call on him to keep his word, and then he is seen to keep his word. Far from being a disincentive to prayer, God's sovereign promises are what give us the confidence to pray. As David put it, because you spoke, I now have courage to pray. Our courage doesn't come from our own wisdom and desires. Our courage comes from his sovereign will and from his revelation. So Henson Baptist Church, let's pray. Let's pray like we see David praying here in chapter seven. We have been given a better promise even than David was given. We have been given Jesus Christ himself. We have been given the promises of the new covenant. We have been given all of the promises fulfilled in Christ. So let's pray them. How are you going to do that? Come back on Sunday evenings and pray with us. Pray for the advance of God's kingdom as we gather on Sunday evenings not to pray for people in the hospital. We do that in in a different context but to pray specifically for the working out of God's promises in his kingdom, in this world. Pray through the membership directory. You guys all, if you're a member of this church, you've got a membership directory. And on the front cover of your membership directory, there's a prayer guide. And it's going to have you pray by name for each member of this church. And if you do it faithfully, you'll pray for everybody in the church once a month. But you say, I don't know what to pray for them. I don't know half those people. You don't need to know half those people, to pray for them. Because the best things you can pray for them are the promises of God. Pray the scriptures for your fellow members. Pray that God will keep his word for your fellow members and trust that they're praying the same thing for you. Join one of the missionary circles. If you've got time on a, on a, on a weekday morning, if, if your work schedule or if you're retired or, or whatever allows you to, to gather on a weekday morning, we've got a whole bunch of people who gather on a monthly basis, to pray specifically for our supported workers overseas and the spread of the gospel around the world. Join one of those groups and pray the promises of God. Insist that God do what He said He would do. That's how we should pray. With humble, bold faith. Which brings me finally back to my opening question. What do you want God to do for you? Because you see, there's a challenge here. I know, I know every person in this room was able to answer that question. You know what you want God to do for you. But how much time and energy do we spend waiting for God To do things for us that he's never promised to do. All the while doubting that he'll do the very things that he said he will do. This weekend, I checked my oldest son, Michael, back into the hospital. That's the third time in about six months. And we don't know when he'll come home. I know what I want God to do. I don't have to think a second about it. I want God to heal my son. I want my son back. Healthy. And whole. In a way that he hasn't been in over two years. That's what I want God to do. And you know what? I pray that every day. And I know many of you do too. And I appreciate that. And he may heal him. And he may not. You see, God's never promised to spare his servants the afflictions and the ravages of a fallen world. He's never once promised us that we wouldn't know disease and heartache and broken marriages. He's never once promised us that we wouldn't know the death of children. Or the want of unemployment. Or the loneliness of singleness. He's never once promised us any of those things. But what has he promised? He's promised that he loves me in Jesus Christ. He's promised that he will not lead me Into trials that are too much to bear. And he has promised that he will not forsake me. Are you like me? Tempted to tie my faith in the promises that God has made. To his willingness to come through on promises that he has not made. Friends, that's not faith. We never, ever, ever get past the faith that we began with. Faith humbly acknowledges that I don't deserve anything. I don't deserve a well son. We don't deserve healthy marriages. We don't deserve happy kids. We don't deserve lives of ease and comfort. Faith acknowledges that we don't deserve anything. But then it boldly takes its stand on what God has said. This trial is not too great. This trial does not mean that God doesn't love me or my family. This trial is actually evidence he is with me and his strength is is sufficient and so I only ask of you Christian what I ask of myself what do you want God to do for you that he hasn't already done let's pray Father, who are we that you would include us in such great promises as you gave to your servant David, as you fulfilled in your son Jesus Christ? Who are we that we would be allowed to participate in your grace? Father, we pray that you would make us people of faith that we would be men and women who hear your word. And because we know who you are, believe your word. And humbly, boldly, take our stand on that word. Father, we pray that as we go through this week ahead, uncertain as it is, with trials that are many and various. Father, we pray that we would again and again remember that all of your promises are yes and amen in Jesus Christ. And that if we are in him, then those promises are ours. And may that be enough. And because of that, may your name be seen to be great in our lives and in our congregation. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.